Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Which, as I said, is Jansenism. And I've, I've made this part of, um, part of a series of, of lectures that I, I've called Great Heresies. And uh, again, heresy is kind of a, 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 a bad word in modern religious parlance. We're very ecumenical, we don't like to use that term, but um, I got the term from a, a book by Hilaire Belloc about 100 years ago called Great Heresies. And so uh, we're talking about Jansenism, which is a heresy of the 17th and 18th centuries mostly. And uh, as you can see, it's very an interesting heretical movement, if you want to put it in those terms, uh, for a variety of reasons. And if you don't know what this picture is, by the way, the background of my slides to show you, this is um, a picture of the nuns, the Cistercian nuns of Pointe Royale in Paris, being removed from their uh, their their uh, their convent by French authorities in the early 18th century. I'll get to why that happens in a moment, but. Uh, it's a conflict, uh, uh, heresy that produces a lot of conflict, really convulses the church in the post-Tridentine era. Um, and so I'm going to start off talking about a few key terms I'm going to use in this lecture, just to make sure we're clear on what they mean, because you may not be familiar with them. Um, the first term is Augustinian. And that adjective I use to refer to uh, a form of piety, um, one that's kind of no longer with us, it is it's still with us in a way, but it refers to St. Augustine of Hippo, the great Western doctor and theologian, doctor of the church. Uh, and the piety that was sometimes associated with him in the Middle Ages, in the modern period, uh, austere, very intense, associated with a, a, a deep sense of one's um, man's unworthiness and the need for God. Usually a conviction of sin is a big thing about this. This is Augustinian sorts of piety. I use that phrase because it's a very important one to understand early modern France after uh, the Council of Trent. The second term I'll throw out there is Gallicanism. And Gallicanism refers to the church in France. Um, Gallican meaning French, another word for it, basically. And this is actually a 19th century term that refers to a body of ideas that goes back to the Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, which uh, goes back to several assertions that French theologians, canon lawyers, bishops made over time. Uh, and there are basically three things. Uh, one is that the King of France is independent of the Pope in temporal power, in temporal temporal uh, uh, affairs. The second uh, is that, um, and this is not, none of these, by the way, are all stated at the same time of the same people, but over many centuries, they get thrown out there. The superiority of ecumenical councils over uh, the Pope. You kind of got a little bit of that in my lecture on the Council of uh, Constance. And then finally, the sort of union of king and clergy, especially the bishops in France, to limit the authority of the pope in France, in the church, within the kingdom, in the name of the ancient canons or the ancient rites of the Gallican church. It's essentially a form of, if you want to say it, Episcopal or, 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 um, or uh, ecclesial nationalism in a way, if you want to put it in those awkward terms. The third one you've probably heard before, but I want to clarify this, absolutism. You can associate this with Louis XIV. He'll appear in my lecture. Um, absolutism, by the way, doesn't mean sort of like a dictator who does whatever he wants in his kingdom. It means someone who has no superior in law within, the, within his realm, a king, who has final say over all aspects of his realms, including the temporal upkeep of the church. Did not mean, by the way, that a, a king could or should um, 
uh, violate natural or divine law on, on a whim. But it meant that um, the king was sort of the um, the uh, the final authority you could appeal to within the kingdom. It was meant to sort of um, um, bolster the authority of the crown in France, um, partly for the making of France great in Europe, basically, was another part of this. And finally, one last thing, I, I, I throw out the term political Jansenism. This may be confusing to you. I think you'll see what this term means in a second. Because Jansenism is a funny thing because many scholars um, have a hard time agreeing on what Jansenism is. <laughs> Sounds crazy. Because uh, I'll, I'll put it and I'll put it, I'll simplify it for you anyway in this talk. But basically there are two forms of it, a sort of religious and theological form of Jansenism, which as you'll see, it's where it originates is in theological debates, but also a more political form of Jansenism, um, more as a political movement. And again, I'll explain, uh, hopefully my narrative will explain things, but it's gonna simplify things that are actually kind of complicated. So let's begin with the actual narrative. And we have to start with the church in France <clears throat> after the Council of Trent. Because remember last time we talked about um, the Council of Trent, its success, um, issuing reforms of the church. It goes into other places. It takes a long time for the decrees of, for the reforms of Trent to reach France for a variety of reasons. One of the big reasons uh, are the wars of religion. Uh, the wars of religion, of course, are a clash um, in France between uh, Huguenots, French Protestants, and uh, French Catholics, mostly for control of the throne. It's a religiously inspired civil series of civil wars. Uh, which leads to horrific amounts of violence on both sides, <clears throat> much of it Catholic against Protestant. Um, and so the conflict has a devastating effect in many ways, not just on the morale of the French church, but also just the physical landscape. Churches get destroyed, cities get uh, bombarded, stuff like this. It ends in 1598 through these wars with the uh, conversion of Henri de Bourbon, um, the King of Navarre, the Protestant King of Navarre to Catholicism. He becomes the King of France. And this leads to the decline of, of, uh, of, of uh, Protestantism in France. The uh, Calvinists become a minority ever after. They lose out basically because of this. But uh, the wars um, leave France a little bit in kind of a disarray, religiously speaking. Um, I mentioned before the reforms of Trent um, didn't penetrate there until the maybe second decade, really, second, third decade of the um, of the 17th century. Why? Because, uh, again, that Gallicanism I just referenced, bishops, the king of France, were resistant to the decrees of Trent. Why? Because they were being implemented by the papacy. They wanted, did not like the, uh, the pope intervening in the, uh, um, the daily affairs of a church in France. And so, um, and so you have in France a situation not necessarily unlike that, say, not as bad as in Germany on the eve of the Reformation. There's a lot of corruption in France. Um, there are a lot of bad bishops, to be blunt with honesty, to put it simply, uh, in 17th century France, um, many whom were not concerned with the flock of their faith, um, the flock or the faith, I should say, their flock or the faith. And this was the case because most bishoprics were effectively in the gift of aristocrats in France who used the church, which was quite wealthy, as a, a source of revenue uh, or as a living to give to their relatives. That is, say, you give a bishopric to your stupid, idiotic son. So even if he's incompetent, he'll still have, he can still live off the lands that the church has and not drain your wealth as an aristocrat and destroy the family. Um, 
Bishops, in fact, were nominated by the king, uh, usually appointed with the approval of a council of clerics. But this did not prevent most of these people, most of these bishops, it gets a little better in the course of the 17th century, as I'll, I'll, I'll describe, from being effectively, again, agents of the aristocracy and of varying quality. A lot of time, not only being people who are not competent, sometimes being people who are, as far as we can tell, actual unbelievers, people who are basically practically uh, atheists in many regards. So it's a, in a bad way. And again, there's a lot of other things going on. This is one of the major problems you have with the church in France. Uh, another, you have problems with the secular clergy, you know, parish, parish priests. And um, their behavior was bad in many instances. Um, we have tons of instances of things like drunkenness, concubinage, that is living with women uh, uh, in parishes. And um, of course, a severe lack of education among the parish priests. Many of them could not speak Latin, didn't have basic grasp of theology. Uh, and again, um, this is because the, remember the reforms of Trent, one of the reforms was you had to establish seminaries for these priests. This didn't start in earnest until the 1620s, 1630s. Really doesn't become completed until the end of the 17th century. So uh, you have severe problems with uh, the, the uh, parish uh, clergy. As well as, by the way, there's also a problem with um, vocations because a lot of people in the lower orders in France, you know, anybody can enter the priesthood because there's no, <laughs> there's no seminary, there's no qualification or criteria for entering. It's seen by the lower orders as a means of social advancement in society. If you're poor, it's a good way to go and get an education or at least, like, or at least get a, a living where you're respected and you have, you know, money, at least some money anyway. And, um, and so both sort of lower and upper orders use it as a sort of social um, social institution in 17th century France. Uh, and finally, a similar um, um, problems uh, happen in the religious orders. They are um, they fall into decay, mostly owing as well to a lack of true vocations, mainly because, again, families who could not or did not want to provide for children would often um, send these people to these monasteries as children against their will, without them really wanting to be there. And it's uh, safe to say that probably most of the people in the monasteries in the early, early 17th century France probably did not have vocations. So you have serious problems in the church in France, religiously speaking, um, around the time Jansenism is born. On the other hand, there is a reaction to this. <clears throat> and it will begin among the upper clergy, actually be among one person in particular, um, usually identified by historians as the Parti des Vaux, which is a group of reformers around King Louis XIII, who's the king at the time, um, after uh, Henry IV gets assassinated in <clears throat> 1610, uh, becomes king. And, um, and um, a group of men, by the way, uh, clergy, but also women, um, um, aristocrats who are, are pious, who want to purify the church in France. <clears throat> most of whom are inspired by this Augustinian piety that I've already mentioned. <clears throat> and the most famous of these, and most important in some ways, is a man named Pierre Berroule, who will become Cardinal Berroule by the end of his life. And he's the primary leader of the Parti des Vaux, the devout party, as it's called. Um, allied with as a friend of Louis XIII, friend with all, all the other major reformers in his life. I won't mention too many names to... Uh, right here. Uh, he patronized the reform of several religious communities. He was also the founder of a very important uh, oratory, the Oratory of Jesus in 1605. He was also a famous uh, spiritual director 
and spiritual confessor for many different people. Uh, he refused um, a number of bishoprics so he could focus on spiritual direction. Uh, and in fact, by the way, he wrote several uh, works um, on the spiritual life. And he's he's one of the founders of the so-called French school of spirituality. If you know what this is, you've probably read some of it. Um, because the French school is marked by this very deep Augustinian piety about how we are, I don't know how to describe it. You can find an English translation of a few of it um, in English, not too many of a rule. It's good stuff, actually. Um, I mentioned it because it, it talks about our, our, our smallness and our need for God and how we're nothing and we need to have, you know, God in our life. <clears throat> the most famous expositor of the French school, long story short, is St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, she's, a, she's in that tradition of, 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 uh, of that school of spirituality. So he's a deeply pious man. He's also a man, however, who's involved in politics, in the life of the kingdom, uh, being advisor to the king. Uh, the two are, go together in this period, obviously, in France. Uh, toward the end of his life, he's made a cardinal. And as a political advisor, his most cherished goal was the overcoming, the ridding of France, uh, the defeat of Protestantism. Um, that's what the devout party as a whole wanted more than anything else. However, he also helped the career of a man whose Gallican and royalist sympathies would prevail over that ideal. That man being a man named Armand Duplessis de Richelieu, more famously known as Cardinal Richelieu, if you know who this is, man who by the 1620s become to supplant him as an advisor to King Louis XIII. Uh, and of course, if you know Cardinal Richelieu from perhaps from uh, the Three Musketeers or anything like this, he is the man who is a much more um, both Gallican, but also uh, a, a sort of um, well, a politician. Um, he sees, uh, um, not only has a sort of more nationalistic idea of the church, he also has a more aggressive notion of what France should be in Europe. Specifically, during the Thirty Years' War, France, if you don't know, the Thirty Years' War is Catholic powers versus Protestant ones initially. Well, when it looks like the Austrian Habsburgs are about to win that war, France uh, goes and allies itself with Protestant powers, mostly at the urging of people like Richelieu. Why? Because they don't want the they don't want the Habsburgs to become too powerful. They want the Bourbon monarchy of France to be the dominant power in Europe. Uh, and Cardinal Berulle, being a pious Catholic, opposes this. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to have an alliance against Spain, which they do actually sign up for. And in fact, by the time you get to 1620, uh, not 1629, uh, Richelieu has basically um, won out. He's about to have Berulle sent into exile. Um, when uh, Belrul dies in October of 1629, which leaves that devout party kind of rudderless, and it will effectively begin to die out over time. But as you're going to see, it's out of this milieu of this devout party, it, which is going to emerge this idea of Jansenism. So, origins of this uh, this heresy. Now, that's the scene in France. We have to go back to the Council of Trent, or just I don't know, actually just after it's um um it's uh or around it's on the same time back to 1563 right so 1562 um uh trent will issue its its um um its uh document its decree on uh uh justification and predestination now i mentioned this you remember go back to the reformation one of the big turning points in which the reformation occurred was luther and calvin's idea that mankind was, because of the fall, so sinful they could do nothing. They had no free will with regards to salvation. That they were totally at the mercy of God's uh, power and grace. And grace was irresistible. Man can't cooperate with uh, God's grace. 
uh, and therefore, you know, uh, you justify by faith alone. Trent, of course, opposes this, and effectively what they state in the decree, and I'll read the decree in a part of the decree in a second, but um, what Trent will say is that salvation, yes, is totally God's work. It's begun by him. He approaches us. He calls us first. It's not a matter of our, our free will doing that for ourselves. Um, <clears throat> and it is brought to fruition by God's grace, but human beings have to cooperate with it uh, and in order to become holy. This is the passage I'll read from Trent. Um, Quote, in adults, the beginning of that justification must proceed from the predisposing grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is from his vocation, whereby without any merits on their part, they are called. That they who by sin have been cut off from God may be disposed through his quickening and helping grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. So that while God touches the heart of man through the illumination of the Holy Ghost, Man himself either does absolutely nothing while receiving the the, that inspiration, since he can also reject it, nor yet is he able by his own free will and without the grace of God to move himself to justice in the sight unquote. It's sort of a middle way, if you like, in between saying we do nothing, we do everything. Basically, we basically cooperate with what we do with it. Why do I mention this? Because around the time, same time that the trend is finishing up in 1563, you're already beginning to have uh, debate breakout at a university in the Netherlands, at the University of Louvain, uh, modern-day Belgium. Um, mostly driven by a man named Michel Dubay, or Bias, as he's called in uh, in Latin. Um, I don't know if my, my Latin uh, friends can tell me I'm doing that wrong, but it's Bias, I don't know how you pronounce it. But And um, Bias is someone who creates a system of thought based on the works of St. Augustine of Hippo, and uh, he's someone who seeks to go back to what he takes to be the original teaching of the church in St. Augustine and bypass both the definitions of Trent and scholastics. And in particular, he takes the works of Augustine of Hippo, and I probably should have done a lecture on the Pelagian controversy, but long story short, Augustine of Hippo was arguing against Pelagius and his followers who believed that, yes, you could work your own way to heaven without God's grace. Long story short, he begins from those works to work out a system which bypasses, um, you know, later developments in the scholasticism. Uh, what happens is eventually he's forced to repent publicly. Some of his errors is bias, but privately he maintains that his uh, uh, interpretation of Augustine is the correct one. And he taught several things. I won't go into this in too much detail, but basically what he, um, what, um, what Bios and some of his other followers will um, uh, will um, will basically talk about is that effectively grace is irresistible. Um, they want to insist on does bias that um, we are sort of bound by the grace of God. We don't have as much free will to oppose it as Trent does. I'm dumbing this down because I don't want to get into this bog down details. Um, and so it's a strange. It's actually a, a strange sort of. Um, system he creates, which has um, elements of Pelagianism. In it. If you know what that—that's kind of weird and that sounds weird, um, because in a state of uh, state before the fall, according to Bias, we basically have um, all the sort of—I uh, guess—all the sort of things we need to acquire eternal life without grace in a weird way. But after we've fallen from that, we need God's grace absolutely, I guess, to in order to. Um, in order to uh, achieve uh, that eternal life. 
And so it's a strange sort of system uh, based on sort of, you know, determinism in a way uh, that he comes up with, which he claims, again, is is basically the true teaching of Augustine and basically rejects any other sort of interpretations of it. Now, this causes, as you might uh, surmise, a great deal of agitation, both at Levin and elsewhere. And in particular, it's going to attract the attention of the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, the religious order that's formed to fight the Reformation. And in particular, one man uh, named Luis de, uh, Luis de Molina, um, Spanish Jesuit, um, who writes a book in 1589, called, uh, basically called the, the Harmony of Free Will and Divine Grace, basically, uh, where he attempts to argue that grace and free will are reconcilable by arguing that essentially um, God's omniscience allows him to know all possible outcomes. So that divine predestination is based on God's foreknowledge uh, of the choices human beings will make uh, and won't make. And so um, basically he, he puts the emphasis on man's free will. Basically he says, yes, grace is, is, you know, irresistible, but also we're still free at the same time uh, effectively. Um, in other words, whereas bias puts the emphasis on uh, on grace and our inability to to to, uh, um, to sort of work to our own salvation, Molina puts the emphasis on our freedom. And in fact, Molina is going to get into serious uh, opposition, trouble, not just from the supporters of people like Bayus, but also from uh, the Dominicans uh, who are um, who. Um, who are um, faithful to the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, in fact, even some followers within his own order, not all the Jesuits go along with this. Most of them take him to be the basis of their, their thinking on this. Uh, he becomes very important for them in that regard. Long story short, it causes such a row, both in Spain and elsewhere, that eventually both sides lob the lobbying charges of heresy at each other. They hold disputations at various universities. Eventually, Rome steps in and creates a commission, the Congregatio Auxiliis, the Congregation of Help, um, Help of Grace is what that refers to, um, to meet and decide this question. Um, and this congregation meets for nine years, trying to decide where the right um, right words are for this for this uh, question. But after uh, nine years, it fails to come to any conclusion. And instead, the Pope basically imposes silence on both parties, that basically both, uh, both, um, both positions are, are, uh, are acceptable, don't call each other heretics, and shut up. As you can tell, uh, about debates like this that are about such enormous things, this doesn't really do any good in the long run, as we will see. <clears throat> Which is where we come to what we call... The origins of what we call Jansenism, a man named Cornelius Jansen, was a um, uh, a priest and a prelate and a bishop from poor family who goes to Levan uh, in the Netherlands to study, uh, then to Paris, where he meets um, a man named Jean du Vergier du Oran, uh, who will become known as the Abbe de Saint-Stéphane, a very, very famous reformer uh, in the early period here. Um, in Paris, comes back, <clears throat> ordained in 1614, receives his doctorate in 1617, has uh, made a professor at the seminary, University of Levin. And um, it's there while he's reading patristics and reading the church fathers that he conceives a project of creating a systematic um, exposition of Augustine's thought on grace and predestination. 
in the 1620s, discussing it with his friend Saint-Seren. And um, his work, I won't go into too much detail, he's on political missions as well during this time frame, but um, he uh, is also writing polemics against Protestants uh, throughout the 1630s. And in fact, by the way, I should mention, he'll actually get on the bad side of Richelieu in the 1630s. He'll write a, bo a, a book uh, criticizing his alliance with Protestants. Uh, he'll eventually die in 1638. However, we'll come back to this, his work on Augustine because it's the source of all of this, ultimately. However, um, there's one other sort of major aspect of all this I have to mention, which is the Abbey of Port-Royal um, um, and the family of the Arnold. Um, the Arnaud family was a middle-class uh, lawyer family, basically, from Auvergne, uh, which rose to power in the 16th century and um, eventually had a series of, um, long story short, series of, uh, of um, lawyers, uh, ending with Antoine, uh, who was Antoine II, uh, who was a, um, uh, a lawyer, but also a controversialist. He wrote a book against the Jesuit and the Jesuits in the 1590s. But he is the father. Uh, he had 20 children and 10 of these children will be major, major players in what we call the Jansenist movement. Uh, most importantly, um, uh, his daughter Jacqueline, we'll get to her in a minute, uh, Mère Angelique, Mother Angelique, that she'll be the, become the abbess of Port Royal at one point. This uh, abbey will be the center of French Jansenism, Jansenism for years on end. Uh, and particularly his other, his son, Antoine, who's sometimes called the Great Arnold, as you'll see, he'll be the, basically the, the most uh, important theologian the Jansenists ever produce in the 17th century. And so it's very much tied up with this one family in many ways in the 17th century. Um, and um, and so what happens is um, uh, um, uh, his daughter um, Angelique is you know she's sent into a, a monastery she's, she's not very devout she has a conversion experience in the early 17th century um, and she's sent there and she goes to um, she goes to uh, this uh, abbey called Port Royal in uh, in the early 17th century and begins reforming it it's a Cistercian abbey. And imposing a really strict, again, Augustinian form of piety on on these people, um, and so you have uh, um, her eventually, um, due to her poor health, moving the abbey, basically relocating the whole abbey to Paris, to a building in Paris, in the 1620s, and installs her community there. Um, what happens is uh, she will also, uh, in the 1630s, found a new order called the Institute of the Holy Sacrament. It's, it will be strongly attacked and its orthodoxy questioned, particularly with regard to uh, um, um, uh, uh, the writing of uh, one of, of her sister, another Arnaud, Agnes, Mother Agnes, uh, which is entitled The Chapelet Secret du Saint-Sacrement, um, which is deferred to uh, the Sorbonne. Uh, and this will be, uh, she'll come under attack and she's going to be defended, uh, is uh, Mother Angelique Arnaud, um, by the Abbe de Saint-Seren. Uh, and the Saint Saran is, uh, again, one of these major figures who was the friend of Jansenius, who is, um, he's one of these major figures trying to push for this Augustinian, Augustinian type of spirituality, which is austere, which, um, as I've seen in a moment, has to do with things like penance and taking communion and stuff like this. Um, but she takes him as, as a, as a spiritual director, uh, and invites him to Port Royal, where, um, um, the nuns enthusiastically accept his teaching and begin uh, spreading his teachings about penance and the Eucharist, which will begin public controversies. 
1637, um, uh, her nephew Antoine will be converted to uh, Port Royal and will go there to live uh, in seclusion and penance as a layman. Um, in fact, this, there'll be somewhere, some other uh, upwards of some like 40 men at Port Royal who are laymen who basically take um, who live in uh, seclusion and penance without becoming priests, without taking vows. This would be one of the things that's criticized uh, heavily about the Jansenists. It tends to appeal to lay people who want to live devout lives. Um, there's some suspicion of this at the time. Uh, meanwhile, Saint-Saran will also fall out with Cardinal Richelieu over church policies. To get rid of him uh, in 1638, uh, Richelieu has him arrested and put in prison. Uh, and he will eventually die there five years later. And um, But he'll be, continue his role as spiritual director for Port Real via letters. Um, and um, um, eventually dying in prison in 1643. Uh, and so you have this, this movement being to form around Port Real, around the members of that, uh, that uh, Devo party. And uh, what's going to happen is to set the conflict off is that at the end of his life, as you're going to see, um, the work of Jansenius is going to come to light and it's going to cause a sensation. <clears throat> so the next part of my show, I'm pulling Jansenism as a heresy because this is where his ideas get into public circulation and become, you know, heretical, right? As a heretical movement. So what happens is he finally finishes uh, Jansen's work, um, does his, finishes his work in 1638, uh, just before he dies. And um, We'll get to it in a minute. As soon as it's uh, actually even before it's published, the Jesuits are trying to attack it. They try to get, uh, they try to prevent its publication. They um, uh, appeal to the University of Paris, try to condemn it. Eventually, as you'll see, the appeal to the Pope as well. Uh, and they engage in a lot of polemics against the, this work, which is called Augustine. That's the short term for it. It's much longer, but it's basically just uh, the, uh, the exposition of Augustine's view of grace and predestination. Um, and they belittled it as um, they attacked it as belittling human freedom and restricting salvation only to the few. And it's actually Jesuit polemics that actually coined the term Jansenist. It was not a term they used. The Jesuits um, were sort of heirs to the to the Renaissance humanism of people like Erasmus. And so they had a much more optimistic view of human nature. Uh, they found, found his ideas repellent and they. Uh, especially because in the work, Augustinus, uh, Jensen attacks Luis de la Molina's ideas. And in fact, the Augustinus was a very learned um, work uh, on Augustine's ideas of grace and predestination uh, and a work of scholarship of some regard for its time. However, uh, like Bios, it proceeds from the most extreme statements Augustine, Augustine made on that topic from his later career. <clears throat> And um, ignoring uh, the sort of development that went on in Augustine's thinking over time. St. Augustine, if you don't know, early in his life in uh, works against the Manichaeans, emphasized free will because the Manichaeans basically said that all our actions are determined by fate. So against them, he emphasized free will. Against Pelagius, who said you, you didn't even need God to get to heaven because you had, your free will could get you there, he was emphasizing the necessity, the absolute necessity of grace. Um, but Augustine maintained, always maintained that once called to baptism by grace, man had to cooperate with it. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, despite it, in fact, it's a learned work and accurate in many ways. 
he holds he holds to many of the same errors that bias did um both on human nature before and after the fall on the irresistibility of grace those sorts of things moreover like bias he also rejects not only scholastic um scholastic ideas like those of saint thomas but also scholastic methods of argument so this is an anti-scholastic work which ignores you know de genuine developments that came after uh, augustine in any case immediate immediate uh, attack um especially at universities the jesuits a few universities in levan and elsewhere have their students preach against it uh what happens is eventually <clears throat> at first trying to get um it um it condemned in france the uh, jesuits appeal to rome and what happens is uh in 1641 the holy office will actually condemn both the jesuits and um uh jansen supporters as having broken the peace uh, instituted by uh, earlier on that topic remember the, the pope in 1607 had said we'll talk about this um this of course did nothing and so um Two years later, you have a bull being issued by Pope Alexander VII called In Eminenti, which repeats the condemnation of the Holy Office about breaking silence on the debate. Um, again, mostly to no effect, except for the fact that it allowed people to attack the man who is becoming the chief uh, proponent of Jansen's ideas, Antoine Arnaud, Lugo Arnaud. And particularly in 1643 is really the sort of start date for the big conflagration because he issues a couple of, of works um one was a, a work on the moral the attacking the moral theology of the jesuits but also one on frequent communion and this is the big one and it was big for two reasons um what arno and the jansenists wanted to say is that the, the uh, jesuits were lax that is to say they let anybody take a commu take communion in whatever state of sin they were actually and they didn't really require enough penance enough preparation for the eucharist they didn't require enough contrition um and this is what the frequent communion is about the jesuits uh, again being modern in this uh advocated for frequent communion the jansenists said no they said no you need to do a certain amount of penance you know when you sin you just sort of withhold yourself from communion so you don't want to take it unworthily um and in fact they could go they could be fairly extreme uh, about this the jansenists uh at one point are no and one of his one of these tracks against the jesuits is complaining about jesuit confessor who gives absolution to this aristocrat who goes immediately from getting absolution to a ball to go dance <laughs> all right and so it's like he's not showing the proper contrition after he's gotten absolution or a proper thanksgiving or whatever um and so this is explosive right um because first of all they're attacking people who are powerful this way you know aristocrats who have jesuit confessors maybe because they are lax and by the way the Jesuits got a reputation for laxity because of the use of what's called casuistry. If you know what that is, that's the sort of um, that's the sort of um, dealing with difficult cases uh, branch of uh, of apologetic branch of theology that deals with difficult moral uh, cases. Um, and the accusation is they use that 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 uh, idea of difficult cases to explain away hard teachings. And um, what made this all the more explosive is that all this stuff up until 1643 had been um the debate had been conducted in latin among learned people that's what you did and so it was confined to a small intellectual leak what arnaud did was publish it in french so that every literate person in the country could read it and of course 
other thing that's a big deal is, of course, when you talk about things like predestination and irresistibility of grace and justification and sanctifying grace and actual grace, all those very technical terms don't mean a lot to most people. But when you talk about, oh, I can't take communion because I'm sinful, that's a much more practical thing. So it moves the debate from from theory, from uh, theology, from abstract intellectual debates to very, very direct things that touch people's lives. And it attracts both, again, critics don't like that idea because you're saying, hey, I'm too damn sinful to take communion. Who are you to say that? Although other people who are attracted by this Augustinian piety, and there are a lot of them, but people who don't never call themselves Jansenists still are attracted to this because they do want to take their faith more seriously. And that's who generally lines up with Arnaud in this uh, fight. However, <clears throat> what happens is eventually the Jesuits get their way and they will appeal, or they appeal again to French institutions at first. And in fact, they get the Sorbonne to draw up seven propositions that are to be condemned, drawn from uh, uh, Jansen's work on Augustine to be condemned. It's shortened to five. Uh, and eventually the Pope in uh, 1653 will condemn these five propositions. <clears throat> and um, which, uh, to preface, I'm going to read what the five propositions are just, for, just to give you clarity on this. Um, the bull itself, however, doesn't ne never names Jansen, Jansen or Jansenius, if you use his Latin term, never names him, nor does it mention his work by name. It just condemns those propositions. Five propositions are, first, some of God's commandments are impossible for the just to obey, since they lack the grace to make it possible. That, by the way, uh, directly contradicts some of the decrees of Trent. Second, in the state of fallen nature, there can be no resistance to interior grace. Again, you're basically saying that grace is irresistible and you have no free will to resist it. Third, uh, for merit and demerit after the fall, it is not necessary to have freedom from necessity. It is enough to have freedom from constraint. Basically saying that you're not really free from necessity, you're being impinged upon by grace. And so denying what the church took to be free will. Third. The fourth, I should have had this term up here as well. Um, the fourth uh, has to deal with what it calls the semi-Pelagians. Semi-Pelagians are people who are sort of supposed to be in between, um, in between, you know, total irresistibility of grace and, and total freedom of will. It's actually a polemical term. Ignore it for the moment. Um, the semi-Pelagians admitted the necessity of an interior and prevenient grace Prevenient meaning the, in, the initial grace you get from God to be called baptism. Um, the necessity, admitted the necessity of an interior and prevenient grace, even for the beginning of faith, but they were heretical in holding that it might be either resisted or obeyed. And so it's condemning that proposition, saying, no, it can be both, you are free to obey or resist grace. <laughs> and then finally, the fifth one, it is a semi-Pelagian error to say that Christ died for all men. Uh, again, this goes back to the, why and that's one's, that one's condemned as false. It's not actually condemned as a heresy. But um, again, why is that problematic? Because that's kind of saying that, well, um, some weren't predestined to hell because predestination is a part of this as well. So they, all these issues are sort of drawn together by these five propositions. Now, what happens here is that um, Arnold, who's a brilliant guy, um, when this comes out, basically says, yes, I agree, all those propositions are heretical. But 
He disagrees um, because it never says it in the bull itself, but he disagrees with the papacy and the defenders of, of the opposition. Um, he says those those ideas never occur anywhere in uh, Jansen's work on Augustine. And in fact, he goes even farther than this, um, because as you're going to see several times, the Pope and other authorities will say, no, those ideas actually are in Jansen's work. And in fact, by the way, they're not there in so many words, but they are basically there. Later in his life, Arnaud will kind of admit this, essentially, but he's trying to defend him here. And uh, he falls back on a distinction. Um, distinct, the distinction between what, right and fact. This is a theological distinction. <clears throat> um, and in fact, he actually said this in print. Um, Arnaud disputed, uh, did not dispute. He said the papacy had the right to decide uh, on matters of doctrine, right? Uh, matters of right, matters of meaning of, of theology, but not on matters of fact. In other words, it has a right to say what is heretical. It doesn't have the right to say what propositions are in a particular book, like Augustinus, basically. And uh, this really kind of upped the ante a little bit, because now, of course, you've brought in not just issues of heresy, but of authority. <clears throat> and in fact, within a few years, Arnaud, who had been teaching at the Sorbonne, is removed by the faculty there. And in fact, you begin to have others being drawn to the, uh, the movement at Port Royal, people like Blaise Pascal, the great uh, scientist and writer, you may know him from his Pensee, which are a wonderful uh, work, you can read it. Um, but he wrote a work in uh, 15, 1656, 57, defending Arnaud and the Jansenists against <clears throat> their Jesuit adversaries called the Provincial Letters. And the Provincial Letters are a, a Besides which, by the way, they're a masterpiece of polemic. They really, they really blacken the Jesuits' reputation uh, among the devout. Um, they, they're come to be seen as nothing more than charlatans who are trying to let people get away with sin. They're also, by the way, from what I understand, masterpieces of the French language. The uh, 18th century uh, skeptic and historian Edward Gibbon, it was supposed to be his most favorite work, so beautifully written in French. But again, it's written in French and has a wide audience. It makes uh, Port Royal, it gains popularity for the movement briefly in the 1650s. However, um, because, um, because this, both the provincial letters, but also Jansenism has a, a following among some of the lower clergy in uh, Paris and elsewhere, this draws the suspicion of Louis XIV. And why do I mention this here is because Jansenism is becoming known at this point and his followers are no as opponents of the church, which in France is the same thing as the state. And that's definitely how Louis XIV sees them. In fact, um, he sees them as trying to stir up the lower orders against the monarchy and the church. Um, to him, they were, quote, a sect inimical to all forms of lordship, whether temporal or spiritual, unquote, inspired by, he, by what he calls, quote, a spirit of independence, unquote. Um, the Jansenists were beginning to become a sort of opposition group over time. And this is this change that happened slowly um, then in the 1650s. The Pope, another Pope steps in in 1656 to try to clarify what was going on. And so it asserts that those propositions in Augustine were really were in Augustinus and that his predecessor had really meant to condemn that book, even though he hadn't said it openly. Um, this in turn, by the way, 
leads to more debate within uh, the Sorbonne and other places in um, in French universities. Why? Because now you had the papacy in uh, in their minds trying to intervene in French affairs. Again, that Gallican that Gallican uh, sentiment gets stirred up by all this. You have another thing being flopped on top of all this 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 esoteric uh, theological dispute. Uh, in fact, many bishops are uh, opposed to what um, um, Alexander the Seventh does in 1665. He issues a formulary. Uh, a formulary is an oath, basically, that you have to take. Remember the liturgy, uh, linking those propositions to Jansenius. As a word, you have to assent to that in order to be a, a Catholic in good standing, essentially. <clears throat> and this had, by the way, been pushed by Louis the Fourteenth and his bishops initially. They eventually got the Pope to go along with this in the 1660s. Things have come to an impasse. However, in 1667, a couple of things shift. One is that Louis XIV is about to go to war in the Netherlands. He needs to have peace at home and with the Pope. Uh, and so the new Pope, Clement IX in 1667, suggests a truce whereby uh, the Jansenists would sign the formulary, but it would leave out the whole debate about right versus fact, leave out Jansenius, and therefore allow for private disagreement. Almost all the Jansenists took this at once, and so the matter was left to lie for the next 30 years. And this is sometimes called the peace of the church because it basically tried to shut the debate down again. As you can see, this doesn't work, <laughs> but it will lead to a transformation over time, as you can see. Transformations. Um, so we've been talking about for a better part of 30 years here, a theological debate becomes a sort of heretical, quasi-heretical movement. I say that because we'll come back to this. Most of the people like Arnaud who are defending uh, defending uh, Jansenius's works, they're not for the most part concerned with the actual debates on grace and irresistibility, all that stuff. They're more concerned with things like communion, stuff like that. Uh, and it will transform into something else by the time you get to the 18th century. And so what happens is, having been silenced in terms of actual debate, the Jansenists turn to publishing lots of lots of works, mostly stuff, well, mostly, you know, works of uh, on the Bible, uh, commentaries, editions of the early church fathers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, um, editions of uh, spiritual classics like, you know, Teresa of Avila and John of Avila's works. Biblical translations from the Greek, from the Vulgate. Um, and this is in the context, by the way, I should mention, if I haven't gotten this before, all, most of these Jansenist leaders we're talking about here are intellectuals. It's a very small group of people. Most of them all know each other personally. Most of them are very brilliant. Uh, and this is in the context in France and elsewhere in the 17th centuries of the very beginnings of modern you know, historical scholarship on things like the Bible and liturgy and stuff like this. And they're a part of that to a large degree. Uh, in fact, as you're going to see, it's out of this is going to come the next sort of wave of Jansenism. At the same time, however, this, 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 this sort of peace lasts about 10 years before Louis XIV decides to sort of uh, try to inflict uh, a little bit of revenge on the Port Royal uh, nuns, where in 1679, he orders all the novices, confessors, and pupils out of Port Royal, effectively closing it uh, because of the no more novices, they can't grow, they're eventually going to die out. Uh, in retaliation uh, for Jansen's opposition to him, because you'll have bishops who are opposed to 
uh, what they've been doing with that formulary and everything. Uh, and so this is uh, pettiness on the, on the part of Louis XIV. Arnaud in 1679 will flee to Brussels in the Netherlands. And we'll come back to this in a moment. But um, it has become by this moment, by this point in the 1670s, a French movement. There is still uh, a following for Jansen's ideas in the Netherlands. We'll come back to this in a moment. It never goes away. Just need to emphasize that there. But a turning point comes when a man named Pasquier Cunel uh, is uh, goes into exile. He's um, been a Jansenist before. He's not been a major part of the movement, but because of a sort of crackdown in 1684, he flees France joins Arnaud in Brussels, and he will be the, uh, an important figure for two reasons. One is that his hands, um, Jansenism is going to become more than just a sort of, you know, a religious, you know, uh, or spiritual movement, which is kind of heretical. Uh, it's going to become a political movement, because from Brussels, uh, Connell will have correspondents all across Europe who are sympathetic with their ideas, uh, connections everywhere, basically, uh, organized opposition to things that are going on in the Netherlands, in France. It becomes a political movement, essentially, uh, in the 18th century because of him, largely. And also because he publishes a work in 1695, which will set off the next round of fighting <clears throat> um, uh, between um, Jansenists and their, and their opponents. The New Testament with Moral Reflections is a book uh, which is, again, it's the New Testament um, with a series of commentaries on it, which, and this is the thing about Connell, um, their ideas that people find objection, objectionable, none of them having anything to do with Jensen, by the way. Uh, he rejected Jensen's ideas. Connell, unlike earlier thinkers in this movement, was influenced by, he was basically in some ways a Thomist. He was influenced by Thomas Aquinas. So he didn't have any use for his notions of grace or predestination. What he did have, um, what uh, it becomes in his uh, his work, uh, are particularly ideas of Gallicanism and appealing to councils uh, over and above the Pope. In other words, it becomes much more about that than these ideas about grace and stuff like this <clears throat> in the 18th century. So finally, come to the last part of the lecture where Jansenism, Jansenism becomes a movement. It's been a heresy already to a certain degree. But now it's becoming a, an organized movement. What does this mean? So you begin to have this uh, row um, breakout in 1702 um, when you have the so-called case of conscience. This is this, um, again, another publish, uh, uh, publication. Uh, question of uh, absolution can be given to someone who espouses a uh, silence in the face of that question about the fact, uh, right, fact distinction, right? In other words, someone, people are being to change, cha uh, challenge the idea that you can stay silent anymore, again, about that debate. Um, and so in the next 10 years or so, there's going to be a, a revival of uh, a lot of this pamphlet war over this stuff. And in particular, the uh, Jansenists are going to find their, um, a, um, a voice and a protector in um, the Archbishop of Paris, a man named uh, Noailly. Uh, who has his arch enemy in uh, Bishop Fenelon, who's associated with the court. So again, you're having this clash between uh, ecclesiastics here. Um, and in 1709, just for almost no reasons at this point, this is where that painting comes from. Uh, Louis XIV finally, uh, finally forces the nuns to abandon Port Royal, demolishes the building in 1711. Um, so petty, he actually throws the remains of the dead nuns into a mass grave. 
from where they had been uh, resting earlier. Pretty awful stuff. In any case, um, you begin to have attacks on Canel's work uh, by Fenelon, the bishop associated with the court. Um, Canel is defended by this Archbishop of Paris, Noai, Noai. Uh, to the extent that it gets so bad that eventually Louis XIV call, asks Rome for a bull that will condemn Canel's work. And he find, and uh, much, uh, much against his better judgment, by the way, uh, Clement XI did not want to do this. He knew it wouldn't do any good. He was right. Uh, he issues the bull Unigenitus in 1713, <clears throat> which condemns 101 propositions <clears throat> supposedly drawn from Canel's work. And it immediately causes stiff opposition. <laughs> Why? <clears throat> well, one of the problems with this, uh, with this uh, bull is, it, quite frankly, it's embarrassing. Um, as a work, as a, as a, <clears throat> um, just as a work of scholarship, because it condemns 101 propositions that are supposedly drawn from Cannell's book. Cannell disclaimed any of this, actually. And to give you an idea what sort of things they were condemning, one of the propositions that I'm quoting from memory, I don't have it in front of me, uh, it condemns reading the Bible in vernacular. The church never condemned that. <laughs> it was not really a heretical proposition. It was probably not in his work, by the way. The reason why I think it got in there, by the way, is because it's associated with Protestantism. And I think Louis XIV wanted to associate the Jansen, Jansenist with Protestantism. Uh, and in fact, some of the, the propositions that are, are um, condemned uh, in the Unigenitus are taken directly out, are direct quotations from St. Augustine and other early church fathers with no explanation. Uh, and again, to go back to that idea, that Augustinian ideal, that Augustinian piety, a lot of people are still in, uh, still um, embracing that in France in the early 18th century. It's still very popular. So when this bull comes out, a lot of people reject it because they think it's rejecting St. Augustine. Uh, it's so poorly rewarded, so sloppy. It's really an embarrassment in many ways, is unigenitus. And it makes things much, much worse. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, there's an immediate campaign throughout the 1720s. Well, first of all, Louis XIV gets most of the bishops to sign off on it and try to enforce it. A handful will hold out, led by the Archbishop of Paris. Um, when that won't force the recalcitrants to, uh, to and they're called appellants, by the way, because they're appealing. And they're appealing, by the way, I should mention who they're appealing to. The, um, the appellants are appealing to Parlement. Parliament are legal bodies which have to sign off on royal laws in the various regions, administrative regions of France during the monarchy. And they can effectively veto royal legislation. So they have a lot of they have a lot of clout and influence. And it's to these people, these Jansenist supporters, I'm calling them Jansenists at this point still, uh, will appeal. And in fact, this is a real problem because it's it's hard for Louis XIV to get around that. And in fact, what they begin to do in the 1720s is they begin to use, the government begins to use, um, if you know this term from political history, it should, uh, should sound familiar, lettres de cachet. Letters of cachet are essentially letters signed by the king um, used to author someone's imprisonment without any due process. It's basically you can imprison someone because the king says so. This, by the way, will get a bad reputation. As you get closer to the French Revolution in political terms, it was used to break the backs of the supporters, the clerical supporters of Cunel and the peoples associated with him. 
uh, in the 1720s, for example, the Bishop of uh, Sanez, uh, was a Jansenist bishop, is actually uh, arrested by a provincial council, just given one of these letters of cachet, and put in prison. Um, at the same time, by the way, this is all going on. Mentioned, this is uh, there's still Jansenist followers in in the Netherlands. There's a schism in 1724. Um, let me set the stage here. Remember, the Netherlands, of course, are under Protestant rule by this point, so Catholics are a minority. So the Bishop of Utrecht has been since the Reformation a uh, a vicar apostolic, a uh, a papal appointee, basically. And what happens is the uh, the um, the uh, the um, cathedral chapter in Utrecht has uh, been agitating for the right to elect their own bishop for a long time under the influence of uh, Jansenist uh, sympathetic <coughs> um, canon lawyers. But what happens is a, a missionary bishop, a French missionary bishop who was suspended, um, moved to uh, the Netherlands. And then on behalf of the cathedral caps, uh, uh, chapter in 1724, consecrated their own bishop for them, a uh, man named Cornelius Steenhoven, uh, who had been elected by the, the, the cathedral chapter, made for clerg lower clergy, by the way. And, uh, and therefore, he initiated a schism, which still exists to this day, I might add. Uh, Steenhoven initially commit, uh, consecrated three more successors, and the so-called Church of Utrecht will exist as a tiny, tiny movement. I believe it's still around. Um, we'll have suffragan, suffragan seats in both Harlem and Deventer uh, in the 17th, 18th centuries as well. Again, all this, by the way, going back to its roots in Jansenist thinking, this opposition to authority in uh, the 17th century. But the final coup de grace, in many ways, of Jansenism as a movement, the beginning of the end anyway, <clears throat> is when finally, after 20 years or so, um, the king issued uh, King Louis the Fifteenth, successor to the Sun King, who dies in 1715. He issues a royal decree elevating unigenitus to state law, and that's important. Uh, if you remember, um, clergy, you know, bishops are appointed by the state. They get their their benefices, their their property from the state essentially, and so now clergy would be deprived of their benefices if they did not sign it. And so it effectively destroys what, whatever foothold um, um, the, uh, the Jansenists have in the clergy, especially the upper clergy. Uh, the Archbishop of Paris, the one that was supporting them, dies in 1929. This is the beginnings of the slow demise of Jansenism as a movement. However, not done yet with this <laughs> strange, long, strange journey. At the same time all this is happening, there is a series of weird events that takes place starting in 1727 in a small cemetery surrounding the Church of St. Medard um, in Paris at the grave of one of these appellants, one of these people who was appealing against Unigenitus, a man named Francois de Paris, someone who had been a, lived, been a deacon, lived a devout life, been a Jansenist, uh, had been friendly with the poor and all this stuff. And after he died, Devout people, poor people in the area would come to his grave to pray. But in, uh, in the fall of 1730, you begin to have a series of healings occurring at this guy's grave. Uh, the first one, which was actually um, declared false later on um, by a pastor, a letter of the Archbishop of Paris later on. But it begins to draw crowds. 
and additional miracles are uh, are cited uh, by people happening there. Later, another woman claimed to be healed, and at the same time was beset by violent seizures, which began to spread to other other visitors to this uh, to this um, cemetery. Um, and in fact, people began, you know, having breaking out into convulsions and stuff like this. They were actually called convulsionnaires by the French because they would go into these weird flights. And I should mention, by the way, it was it was not poor people. It was mostly middle class Parisians who were invested, really deeply invested in what seemed to them to be this holy site. Um, one of whom, by the way, I have to mention this detail. It's too delicious. One of the people who was caught up in this movement, which lasts for several decades, was the brother of Voltaire. You heard me right. That's right. The skeptic, the uh, Voltaire, his brother was a convulsionary. Um, what happened was when the, within a year or two, these crowds became so um, so boisterous, they got violent, started having uh, brawls break out, and eventually the king had to close the cemetery down. But it didn't stop the convulsionaires. In fact, these so-called miracles of, of saint Medard um, would happen in people's homes. They would be in homes and have these things going on. It got into some weird things. I won't go into it, but um, convulsionaries had meetings, uh, what I read, into the 19th century in their own homes. So crazy thing, maybe as a result, perhaps psychologically, of the breaking down of the movement itself. Um, but it doesn't end there. <laughs> it keeps going uh, because in the 1740s, you're going to have, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a Jesuit publish a book in the in 1745 condemning Jansenist doctrines on unworthy communion. Uh, later on, that work is condemned by the Holy Office. 1749, the Archbishop of Paris will uh, cause a stir by refusing last rites to uh, an unrepentant appellant against Unigenitus. It causes such a row that, again, both Louis XV and the Pope, Benedict XV in 1755, tried to issue decrees saying no more about this issue. It won't go away, of course. And of course, it doesn't. Uh, at the same time, um, Jansenism or a version of it's getting into other parts of Europe or has, in particular, into the Holy Roman Empire, modern day Germany. A man named Fabronius, a, a, a suffragan bishop there, a pen name, uh, publishes a work called On the State of the Church, which argues for a bunch of mostly Gallican things, but also some Jansenist influence ideas about the lower clergy, the importance of the lower clergy at the expense of bishops, stuff like this, gets into the Holy Roman Empire. I'll come back to that because it'll have an influence on Italy. Finally, there's one last gasp, uh, and a couple of last gasps for, um, for Jansenism, <clears throat> which by this time, by the way, I have to mention this, uh, according to William Doyle, who's a historian of Jansenism, the term Jansenist had become so broad by the 18th century that it referred to any opposition group. And in fact, one of the places where there's the most sympathy, sympathy for appellants, uh, people who protest unigenitus in the 18th century, are these uh, parlement, what I mentioned before, these, these legal bodies that meet uh, and can thwart the king's will. In 1761, uh, the Parliament of Paris issued a decree um, decrying, uh, basically declaring the Jesuit constitution incompatible with the laws of the kingdom. If you're wondering why they do this, or again, you're getting into the 18th century, ideas of national sovereignty and authority are becoming more prominent. The Jesuits, of course, are an international institution under the uh, direction of the Pope, 
who traditionally Gallican thinkers in the Parlement in the universities don't like interfering with their their uh, with the government of the church. So they, they get them to issue this decree. Three years later, <clears throat> through influence of the Parlement, but also his mistress, Ma, uh, Madame de Pompadour, Louis XV issues an edict banning the Jesuits, uh, expo- expelling the Jesuits from France. Nine years later, uh, Clement the fifth, uh, Clement, uh, how is his name? Uh, the Pope Clement, I must say the, uh, the 15th, um, will actually, uh, disband the entire order, internationally speaking, through, through pressure of Spain and other countries. So, uh, at this point, it seems like the Jansenists or the descendants of the Jansenists have had their last laugh on their Jesuit tormentors. In fact, there'll be one last sort of, a uh, couple of last gasps for some of the ideas they have about church authority and stuff like this. Um, perhaps the most important of these is the so-called, two, uh, two most important of these are the Synod of Pistoia, which is a synod that met in northern uh, Italy in 1786. Now, Jansenism had sort of uh, had some defenders in Rome in the 1750s under the pontificate of Benedict XV, but it petered out there. However, um, the northern states of Italy were close to the empire, and ideas got filtered down from the empire in northern Italy. And so you have um, uh, uh, a synod uh, uh, convoked by a bishop in northern Italy at Pistoia, a man named Ricci, which basically uh, tried to um, um, effectively impose a program of Jansenist-inspired reforms. There's a so-called uh, uh, 57 points of ecclesiastical reform, which included things like um, um, renewal and updating of uh, of, uh, of studies, of clerical studies for uh, priests, a revision of the Roman catechism uh, and liturgical texts, in particular, by the way, the revision of the breviary, the mass, and other ceremonies to be put in the vernacular, um, the reorganization of the clergy and a more just distribution of pure, uh, uh, church goods, um, they wanted to have some of the wealth taken from the, the higher clergy, given to the lower clergy. Um, the uh, purification of private and public piety, they were against things like images and pilgrimages. Um, and then, um, um, yeah, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, all of which, by the way, again, more or less have been espoused by people called Jansenists at some time or another. Far removed, by the way, nothing about the original <clears throat> debate about grace, just those things. Um, what's going to happen is this is going to get swamped under, however, it's, it's actually shut down by the Pope, um, Pope Pius VI. But more immediately, a bigger earthquake happens in 1789, of course. The French Revolution breaks out. Um, the National Assembly, which creates itself in the course of that revolution, will nationalize church lands. And it will create, in effect, a national church. <clears throat> Excuse me. The so-called civil constitution of the clergy in 1790 requires uh, clergy to take an oath, swearing an oath of loyalty to the to this new state church, state-run church. Basically, should sound familiar. <clears throat> Splits the clergy in, in half in, the, in France. Main point about this is the one of the leaders of that constitutional church, who eventually goes along with it, is a man named Henri Guigouard. It was an abbe. He's also a Jansenist. He's probably the last significant figure in the history of the movement. Um, he's for all sorts of wild things. Um, he's one of the people who supports, for example, local parishes electing their clergy, stuff like that. And in fact, despite all the vicissitudes of the revolution, it more or less survives the civil constitution. 
Um, I should mention, by the way, that I forgot to put it up there, but the Synod of Pistoia is condemned, and all of its sort of teachings are condemned in 1794 by Pius VI um, in his bull Actoritem Fidei. And it's sort of a laundry list of all these Jansenist things, but in particular things that, you know, I've mentioned before, we'll come back to this. Some of them aren't necessarily in and of themselves radical. <laughs> uh, again, a lot of stuff about like having, you know, liturgy or the Bible and vernacular, those sorts of things. <clears throat> However, what finally, finally kills off this sort of movement is Napoleon. Because Napoleon, when he comes to power in 1801, realizes the majority of French Catholics still kind of need the Pope, still uh, like the Pope. And in fact, what happens is um, the revolution sweeps away a lot of people who wanted all those things that the Synod of Pistoria uh, wanted. Um, Paul VI could condemn that stuff because by 1794, most everybody who wanted that stuff was already outside the church anyway. Napoleon knows this, and so he signs a concordat with Rome in 1801, undoing the civil constitution of the clergy, not just restoring the papacy, but giving it a lot more power than it ever had to, to, to um, oversee the French church. It's kind of the undoing of Gallifanism in the end. And you can kind of date that as the end of the movement. Although two last, two last sort of dates, if you want to know this stuff. There had been in the 1720s a Jansenist newspaper created called the Nouvelle Ecclesiastique, which sort of um, was a vehicle for criticism of the government and criticism of Unigenitus. Uh, it pu was uh, published from 1728, 1728, ceases publication in Utrecht in 17, uh, 1903, and to add insult to injury, in 1814, Pius VII uh, revives the Jesuits. Uh, and so you want to see the end there, their, their old enemies are resurrected from the dead, and the Jansenists are no more. <laughs> So we come to an end here, some reflections on the history I just recounted to you. Defining a heresy, <clears throat> because I mentioned at the beginning of my lecture, you might, uh, that not all historians even agree sometimes on what exactly Jansenism is. And in many ways, from what you just heard and what I've read, it is not in some ways one thing at all. It's actually several different things, most of which, I think most of which I can safely say aren't heretical. So what was heretical? What was this thing? Well, let's get through this. Um, <clears throat> the first thing to note about uh, Jansenism that it only ever, only ever, for the most part, when we say Jansenism, um, uh, Jansenism as, as going back to Jansen's ideas about grace and predestination, it only ever had a handful of intellectual adherents, people who were really highly educated, really um, intellectually inclined, the vast majority of people who supported uh, Jansen, who um, defended his works, were people who just admired the sort of austere piety that the man uh, portrayed in both in his personal life and in his writings. That's why the Abbe Saint-Seran did that. Abbe Saint-Seran didn't really have a lot. Didn't When he first read the, the Augustinus, uh, Jansen's work on Augustine, he wasn't really all that keen on all the intellectual stuff. He just wanted somebody who would agree with his ideas on, on unworthy communion. Um, most people were Augustinians. Most of the people were never really, I think, supportive of those very esoteric ideas, which are, quite frankly, are they're hard to understand for most people. Uh, what attracted people to it was that uh, that sense of austerity. And again, go back to what I said in the beginning about this time period in which you know the clergy is not really great. There aren't a lot of good bishops. 
lay people who are devout are looking for more intense faith, this seemed to fill that bill. Um, also, the fact that people are looking for a simpler, by the way, more Christocentric piety, more focused on Christ rather than, say, I won't say other parts of the faith. Um, that's a perennial desire within Christianity. There's always a movement to be more simple, right? Um, and in this sense, Jansenism was perfectly orthodox, wanting to have a more simple devotional life. You know, again, it's one thing to not say you don't like icons that much. It's fine. Don't like pilgrimages that much. It's fine. You prefer a simpler, more biblical devotion. Um, but like Erasmus was one of the predecessors of this. Um, you can come to dislike too much the things that you're not, you know, uh, attached to. Um, and so a lot of these people saw in, uh, probably saw in what we call Jansenism, uh, a defense of a devout and serious Christian life amidst a church where, where such was not always, you know, the norm, obviously. Um, <clears throat> and especially that simpler devotional life, which also meant, by the way, trying to reach people. This is where you get advocates for, um, 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 uh, reforming the liturgy, right? Trying to make it more historically accurate. It's the beginnings of historical research on things like this, um, both in France, but in Italy and elsewhere. Um, there's a movement to sort of make more simple the liturgy so people can understand it. That's the attraction of having Bible and vernacular, liturgy and vernacular. I mentioned that because there has been from the very beginning, and I haven't hit it on the head here, but you've probably been thinking this, um, Going back to their Jesuit opponents, accusations that Jansenius and then his later followers were instituted, uh, influenced by Protestantism, that they were effectively crypto-Protestants. <clears throat> and um, it's hard to say. Um, there are some historians who think this is the case. Again, it begins in Louvain, which is um, historians call this one of the frontiers of Catholicism in Europe because it's on the borderland with a Protestant power. Uh, certainly, um, their emphasis on the uh, on sin and the need for God's grace. That's one of the things about uh, it's attractive about Augustinian piety, right? Uh, one of the things about this issue of grace is, okay, you have free will, but if you really feel like you're free, it's hard to feel like you need God, right? Um, hard to act like a, a devout person if you don't feel like you really need God. And why do you need him? Because you're sinful. So the emphasis comes on that over time uh, in that, that Augustinian mindset. And so it can go. And there's some crossover, I think. Um, one other similarity it might be between Protestantism and Jansenism is that both um, Luther, <coughs> Calvin, their ideas arise like Jansen in a, in a, um, in a um, or become popular in places like France. Like in Germany at the end of the uh, before the uh, just before the beginning of the Reformation, where there's a dissatisfaction with the quality of of um, you know conventional or customary piety, uh, where there's a, a serious dissatisfaction with the behavior of the clergy. Uh, I think it's tempting to see that you know grace is irresistible and you felt it, and therefore you're you're on the right side of things. Uh, must be comforting, right? If you're uh, surrounded by people who are, you know, not devout and make light of the faith and stuff like that. Maybe there's some psychological uh, similarities there. Um, and of course, I mentioned these things before, the whole wanting to have vernacular liturgies and stuff like this 
Of course, that did sound Protestant to some people, so they were wary of it. The Council of Trent had, you know, one of the things that it meant to do was strengthen and clarify what the Catholic faith was. It did it in a very anti-Protestant way. And so anything that was too much looked like, looked Protestant was kind of, you know, uh, viewed suspiciously for obvious reasons. One thing that does characterize Jansen, if not some of the other people, but definitely Bios, definitely Jansen, and a lesser degree, maybe Cunell, um, is an abuse of what I'm calling resourcemal. Uh, resourcemal is a 20th century term, which means going back to the sources, meaning going back to the ancient sources of the faith, <clears throat> going back to the Bible, going back to the early church fathers, going back to the medieval uh, writers. And um, in fact, this is, this is, a bit, this is one of the, this is a good thing, obviously, right? You want to go back to the Bible. Those are all good things. Uh, but you can abuse this idea. Um, this is what happens with uh, the Protestant Reformation, actually, where you go back essentially and you um, you go back and you idealize, you idolize, I should say, the primitive church, the early church. Um, this is what Jansen does with Augustine. Uh, he embraces what one scholar, uh, one scholar called, quote, a patristic fundamentalism, unquote. Um, the idea is everything was perfect in the early church, and everything that came after it basically is a, a, a sort of corruption or falling away from that. <clears throat> it's a going back to the sources which doesn't uh, account for or acknowledge genuine later developments. Um, you can see that in Jansen's anti-scholasticism, as with uh, as with bias, as with other thinkers, as with the, as with the you know Luther and Calvin, this is the idea that everything else there's no genuine developments going on between the ancient world and the recent past. Um, this is also a sort of perennial temptation because we always need to go back to the original sources to refresh ourselves and our faith, churches as an institution, but also personally ourselves over time. Um, and what they do is they the what they do the Jansenists. Um, is that they they set this against the church's authority, its living authority, and that's one of the big things here. One other way it gets defined, if people throw that that label out on it, is excessive rigorism. And again, this is the idea that you make people too scrupulous about their sins, you have them worrying too much about how awful they are. Um, it's thrown at them. It was thrown at them by the, the Jesuits, I'm sure, by the way. And there is, by the way, there's, there's certainly some truth to this. I think you can also overdo it. Um, there's certainly, by the way, pa I've never read uh, Pascal's Provincial Letters. Um, his accusations against the Jesuits being lax in their in their in their their their, um, their morality, I'm sure has is, is true in many ways. It's also a caricature. It's also not every Jesuit was like that, and I can't imagine most Jansenists were as harsh as Saint Saran or some of his followers at Port Royal. You can more easily, more charitably see their rigorism um, as an attempt by, well, laymen and the lower clergy to more fully live out their faith. Um, and that's something you can kind of see it in that regard. <laughs> and in fact, for all the different changes, to all the, the more theological Jansenism, the more heretical thing in the 18th century, 17th century, the different, more political opposition it becomes uh, in the 18th century, there is one thing that kind of binds them all, in my opinion. Um, William Doyle is the one who uh, got me onto this, is that Jansenism becomes from the 1640s a sort of synonym for an opposition to the living magisterium of the church. It's where they get, because they are intellectual, because they are intelligent, learned, um, they develop a habit really quickly of 
denying the church's right to settle things. That's what they were trying to do in the 1650s. They no, we, we, def- we, we got rid of this stuff. No, and like, and we're going to have this, you know, spurious distinction between fact and right um, and bring that into play. Um, it's uh, what otherwise, for the most part, of what could have been an easily, and what in spiritual terms was, for the most part, a, an authentic, you know, devotional and, and spiritual movement, became um, through that a, uh, a sort of knee-jerk uh, opposition group over time. Um, even if, like I said, I don't think most of these people were strictly speaking heretics. I, I can't see it for the most part, except for the fact that it came, <clears throat> became about the church's authority. Because that's where you get in. And this is, it comes, you know, that becomes a question of, okay, you know, when, you know, does the living, does the magisterium, not in its infallible sense, but in its ordinary magisterium, does it ever err? Because quite frankly, and again, I'm not a theologian, take everything with a grain of salt. Unigenitus was a mistake <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's it's a pretty sloppy document in a lot of ways. So where is it? Although, on the other hand, I think they're right in the 1650s, by the way, to condemn those propositions. <clears throat> so it's kind of this interesting, bizarre movement. Finally, last last um, last reflections on this, and I'll, I'll finish up. <clears throat> Some scholars tend to identify Jansenism as a modernizing movement, sometimes thought of as being like the first real modern heresy. Why? Well, one thing is, first of all, it's clearly a reaction to changes in the post-Reformation, post-Tridentine church. Um, partly because it has this um, <clears throat> it has this quality of coming to fruition in a, in a, in a region in, of France, which is very wealthy, and on the cusp of modernity. It's a couple hundred years away, but it's in a, you know, it, there's some parallels between this story in our, our modern society, obviously, because in a wealthy, um, you know, um, wealthy, well-to-do society, people who will have lots of wealth and money and material abundance, they don't tend to see as much need for God, right? Um, this is what the, the Jansenists were complaining about. These people don't really feel like they need God. So how can they be saved? They don't feel like they need, this is what kind of uh, leads to that. And it's kind of a, that's kind of the problem in the modern world, isn't it? People, you can have this argument or that argument, but they don't feel like they need God in their lives. They're not going to probably embrace the faith. Uh, that's definitely in some ways a modern situation. The other thing, of course, is that, you know, you could you could easily see, and in fact, I think someone accused, um, uh, I'm assuming it's a liberal Catholic, accused um, those bishops who were concerned about uh, Pope Francis's um, policy on divorce and remarried having communion or whatever i think they i think that they actually use the term jansenist to refer to them as being you know modern rigorist and all this sort of stuff which is kind of funny because a lot of the later jansenist demands um and this is much later it's more with connell and onward to get this but demands for uh the vernacular in the liturgy the vernacular of the bible simplification of the liturgy they're they're like anticipations of what you're going to get after Vatican II. Um, even more, even more, you know, because one of the things about Jansenism, these people tend to present themselves as the elect, right? The sort of overbearing, there's one thing to be devout, they're kind of overbearing about it, kind of, you know, divinely ordained busybodies, I think of them as being. Um, 
But you think about what is it, Lumen Gentium? I can't remember which which document of Vatican II calls for the what was it, the universal call to holiness. What the Jansenists wanted was everybody to take their faith seriously. That's why so many people didn't like them. <laughs> that's also that's also a Vatican too. The laity and all this other stuff. You know, the fact that um, um, the Jansenists put a lot of emphasis on the, the rights of the lower clergy, the laity. It seems like a, 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 a you know an anticipation of what the church would later turn towards since the 1960s. So in that way, it has a role uh, in the development of the modern church, which you wouldn't think and you probably never heard of, which is very weird. But in any case, <clears throat> probably true in, in some regards to say that we are uh, living in the shadow of this very strange, in some ways, <clears throat> least heretical of heresies, uh, which we'll call, which we, for convenience sake, I think still need to call one thing Jansenism, even though it was also many at the same time. And that is my talk for this evening. <clears throat> Let me <clears throat> stop the screen share. We have some people on. Hold on for a second. I think 